Today on Kellen's Petty Talk Show, I'm pleased to have legendary director Gary Sherman. You may have seen some of his films, including Dead and Buried, Vice Squad, Poltergeist 3, Lisa, and Wanted Dead or Alive. As always, this episode is sponsored by Pie Bake Shop, delicious pies crafted in the heart of Los Angeles and delivered fresh to your door. Just call 818-986-1441. That's 818-986-1441. Or follow them on Instagram at Pie Bake Shop. That's P-I Bake Shop. How you doing, Gary? I'm doing good. How are you doing? We're doing great. Awesome. Thanks so much for being here. Well, my pleasure. Something to do during the pandemic. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> just bored every single day. Yeah, so we're just trying to make use of the time. <laughs> what have you been doing during the pandemic? Um, not as much as I'd like to be doing. I actually had just started working on a script before the pandemic began and it was the first spec script I've done in a long time. And I just was one that was sitting in my head and I just decided to do it. Oh, that's Um, great. And, uh, I've written about four pages over the eight weeks. (laughs) Okay. So it's coming along slowly. (laughs) <laughs> every every time I sit down at the computer, I just start thinking about other things, and um, yeah, and then actually a couple of paying jobs came up, so that kind of shifted my. my there you thing. go. What do you use I'm, to I'm write like your scripts? A, what program? Yeah. Um, I use Scriptor. Uh, okay. The a, the old program, which you know, Wright Brothers, that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really like that program. So yeah, I've, I've heard used good things it, about that one. Yeah, I've used it for God since I've been writing on a computer, basically, and they keep <laughs> wow. upgrading it every year. And it's uh, yeah, script scriptwriter, I think, is now the official name of it. Oh, okay, and, um, it, it's a really great program. I use Final so, Draft. I, I won like some version of it at a film festival a couple of years back, and it hasn't expired since. So, I'm still using that. Yeah, me and some friends uh, have been using uh, Celtics, and uh, even when I was doing script writing in college, that was one that we were using. Uh, it's pretty good. It's not bad. Yeah, but I don't know. I, I I actually I've tried Final Draft, and I like um, I like Scriptwriter a lot more. Yeah, no, it, it's just more user friendly. Oh, um, is it? Yeah. And as as someone who's written a lot of scripts, a mm. lot of the things that I like to do with a script they, that happens in scriptwriter which doesn't happen in final draft. Yeah. So So let's start with your one movie Dead and Buried. How was Robert England casted in the movie? Oh, I I knew Robert before before we did that and buried, I had actually worked with him. Um, I had just finished a, a a big event for NBC that I had cast Robert in. Um, in. In the in the big events for NBC at that time in the eighties, um, they the casting was all done from people who were in television series, and. I had met Robert at a couple of casting sessions and and I just thought he was amazing. And I really pushed the network to allow me to cast somebody in the film who was not currently in a television series. And I read him in front of them and they just loved him. 
And so we worked together on this big television movie. And then <clears throat> I was offered Dead and Buried. And I said to him, you want to come do a movie with me? And he said, yeah, that would be great. So <laughs> um, like I actually wrote the part when, when Ron Shusett and I were doing the rewrite on the script on Dead and Buried. Um, we wrote that part of the tow truck driver for Robert with Robert in mind. So oh, that's um, cool. To him. Yeah. Robert, Robert and I are still really good friends and, uh, and he, he calls me one of his great pre Freddie friends. <laughs> <laughs> so no, he's I was really good friends with Robert him. before he was Freddie. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. His, no, his whole life kind of blew up those next couple of years later. Dude, he's, amazing he still is to this day one thing i like about him is his enthusiasm you know oh yeah, he's apparently. fantastic and my daughter uh and her husband only live a couple of miles from from robert and nancy so i get to see him quite a bit when i'm when i'm down when i go back to california to visit my daughter oh that's cool where does your daughter live like in la area or Laguna Beach. Oh, nice. I was just there actually the other day <laughs> surfing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I went surfing for the very first time during all of this because they opened just Laguna and San Clemente. It was kind so of what's it like surfing with a mask on? Well, surprisingly, you don't have to do that. <laughs> but uh, honestly, that was the first time I went this year and I actually screwed up my ear really bad and I'm still kind of dealing with it. Oh, sorry about that. But yeah. I'll be fine. So uh, that whole opening scene in Dead and Buried is pretty amazing. And it's very effective, especially the shovel hitting the head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. I just love that. Yeah, um, we had fun. And I mean, you know, you, you, you just get that kind of, you know, music that, you know, Joe Renzetti is just such a brilliant composer. And, oh, sure. and setting that weird mood at the beginning and you think, what the hell are we watching? And this really light scene. And then all of a sudden the shovel. <laughs> <laughs> so Jack Albertson played the coroner. Uh, Dead and buried was one of his final roles. How was he to work with? It was his final role. Oh, it um, was his final role. Okay. Yeah. He, uh, he died while we were still in post-production. Oh, wow. Um, we had actually, he died the day after we finished his ADR. No way. Um, oh, God. And uh, Jack horrible. was Jack was one of the most fantastic people. He, as, as open and good as the parts that he played, that's what he was like as a human being. Wow. He was just absolutely wonderful. And, you know, we knew when we, when we cast Jack to do this that he was dying and yeah. he had cancer and we oh. knew that and it was a problem with you know insuring him and everything else but we just decided mm -hmm. we wanted to do it and i was just so thrilled and honored to be able to work with him um it it really meant a lot to me to be able to do that mm -hmm. and uh um he he was just unbelievable he's such a gentleman I mean, we had some problems because of his illness. Uh, when when we would be doing uh, on camera, he was just you know, boom, showtime, you know, yeah. and he just 
get himself up. But when we were doing reverses and he was, excuse me, doing his off camera, um, he would fall asleep sometimes. Ah, oh, really? From all the medications he was taking. And yeah. there was one, one time we were doing uh, uh, James... James Ferentino, Jimmy Ferentino was sitting on Dobbs's desk and we were shooting over Dobbs back to Jimmy and doing, doing the scene. And we'd always shoot Jack's side first while he was, had the energy. So now we came around and we're shooting Jimmy's side and Jimmy's doing his lines to Jack. And suddenly Jimmy's eyes teared up and this look came over his face that was just devastating. And he jumped up and ran off the set. And what had happened was Jack had fallen asleep. And Jimmy had just lost his father. Mm. And Jimmy was in the hospital with his dad when his dad passed. And Jeez. Jimmy was in the middle of a conversation with his dad when his dad died. And this felt exactly the same way that um, uh, that what had happened with his dad, and he just like freaked out and ran and locked himself in his trailer. Jeez. And um, but uh, you know, we got him back. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And do do but uh it was um, it was pretty devastating for him and he jimmy really loved jack and so it yeah. was uh, hard i had dinner we had here's one of the things that's really one of the worst things about being in this business mm -hmm. and having half of your friends house being household names yeah. is that if anything happens to them you hear about it on the radio or on television Oh, it's the or worst. in the newspaper. And we had been in ADR with Jack. And then his wife came and met him. And we all went out to dinner. Uh -huh. And we went out to dinner. We had a really nice time. It was early. You know, we went to an early dinner. She took him home. I went home. I got up the next morning, turned on the news. And the first thing I heard was, actor Jack Albertson passed away this morning at Cedar sinai Hospital. And, wow. well, wait a minute, I just had dinner with him last night. Well, as it happened, they got home, he wasn't feeling well. His wife took him to the hospital and he passed during the night. Wow. And um, it was... Uh, <laughs> it's happened to me so many times now, I can't even count it. No, I know. Wow. Well, at the end of the day, he did an amazing job in the film, despite all that. Um, and it's a pretty strong final role for him, I would say. Do you know what his first role was? I don't. His first um, ever role. Miracle on 34th Street. Oh, really? Really? He's what? the guy at the post office that opens the letter and says, Hey, look at this. It's a letter to Santa Claus. Maybe we should send it to the courthouse. Really? Oh <laughs> yeah. My God. That's, that's like my mom's favorite movie. That's, that's Jack's first role on camera. Wow. 
he was one of the very <laughs> first actors I kind of fell in love with because when I was in kindergarten, we did a play of Willy Wonka. Oh, right. That was like the first thing I ever acted in. And uh, so, yeah, they made us watch the, the film and we would just keep rewatching it. And yeah, he's just such a lovable character, not only in that movie, but in pretty much every movie he does. Poseidon Adventure as well. He did amazing in that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was he was amazing. It was my friend Mel Stewart, who's also gone, um, unfortunately, who did Willy Wonka mm-hmm. with Jack. That whole reconstruction scene that uh, he does on the girl that gets attacked by the town chills me to the absolute core. It makes you wonder how much work a coroner does on the average dead person to prepare them for like funeral sur- services. Not as much as, <laughs> as Dobbs did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, um, you know, usually when people are that badly uh, mutilated, they, they usually don't do any reconstruction on them. But, yeah. you know, those are Stan Winston's hands. Are they really? In that, yeah. Yeah, because Stan was actually doing, we had the camera set, and Stan was actually doing the sculpting right there on the set. Oh, wow. He sculpted that face on the set. Stan was just. He's amazing. I was so lucky on, on my movies, the people I've gotten to work with. You know, that was Stan's first major motion picture, too dead and buried so oh, wow. um you know it was both it was stan's first picture it was it was robert's first um and launched uh, a lot of careers then definitely. if you look at it that way yep yep and uh you know lisa blount mm-hmm. who went on to do uh, officer and a gentleman yep and then and then she became a director and a producer and actually won an Oscar for a documentary that she did. Oh, wow. So, and in Dead and Buried, you get to see her tits. <laughs> <laughs> and that's always a bonus. <laughs> and the, de- the deaths in the film are still very, really damn effective. I mean, to this day. I mean, I just rewatched the film the other day. The, the deaths are really effective. Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, that was what the whole thing was about. Was, uh, yeah. you know. It was Dobbs' puppet show. I mean, the whole the whole movie was Dobbs entertaining himself. So mm-hmm. he wanted to see the most gruesome deaths that he could see, and that's mm-hmm. what he got to see. <laughs> so it was all his little his little puppet show. It was a fun movie to make. I mean, you know, just the thought of the when we got into the film that nobody in the film was alive except Dobbs. Yeah, and then and then the couple with um with the little kid when they come into town uh mm-hmm. and and then of course the people you know one of the things that i really hate about the final film is that, you know if you guys have listened to the audio track on the on the blu-ray on the uh blue underground blu-ray or the even the un, blue underground dvd the double set my commentary, I talk about the problems that we had in the film. And the, the production company changed three times while we were making the picture. Wow. Um, we started out with one production company. That production company got bought by another production company. So we did pre-production with one production company. We did production with another. 
and we did most of post-production with that second company, and then a third company bought the second company, and they made me change lots of stuff in the film, which I was rather upset about, although I yeah. fought like a banshee, and basically their changes maybe did a 10% change, so 90% of the film is still the film I wanted to make. Oh, that's but good, one man. of the things was they wanted another death in the film, and... So I got pushed and pushed and pushed and finally said, well, and somebody came up with the idea of killing the doctor when uh -huh. he's testing the, and the doctor was already dead. I mean, that was, <laughs> so we had to restructure a whole bunch of stuff in the film in order to do that scene. And I hate uh -huh. that scene. If that scene was just cut out of the film, I would be more than happy The acid in the nose. And Stan Winston wasn't available, nor did he want to do it, the uh, acid in the nose stuff. So they brought in another special effects person to, to just um, finish it off, to just do that. And uh, um, so I hate that scene. <laughs> yeah. Now, that's understandable. Nobody likes changing anything. No. Especially when it's not your idea to do so. We love the film regardless. That's that's absolutely one of your best, we'd say. Definitely. Yeah, well, I have my three favorites. Yeah, what are your three favorites? I'd love to know. Well, Deathline, which, of course, is my firstborn. Classic. And I, and I love that movie. Um, and, I mean, Deathline I made in 1972. Yeah. And it has never not been on a screen since it was first made. Wow. It has never gone away. And, you know, now with the new Blu-ray, which we, we did a scan from the original camera negative. Yeah. Which is very rare um, mm -hmm. to, to do. The BFI, the British Film Institute, helped us find the cut negative, And we, mm -hmm. we did the scan from the cut negative. That new Blu-ray from, from Blue Underground is just really incredible. Yeah. Um, I still gotta grab have one. you seen it? I've seen Deathline, yeah. Like once. But have you seen the the new Blu-ray? I've seen the I haven't watched the Blu-ray, but I know about it. I gotta buy it still. <laughs> yeah, you have to watch it. Dude, Blue Underground so, does a good job on their Blu-rays. I'll send you one and I'll sign it. <laughs> oh, that'd be awesome. <laughs> what was Donald Pleasance like? Donald Pleasance, I mean, you ask about you ask about two of my favorite people so far that I've ever worked with. Um yep. Donald Pleasance was just the best. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, when Carrie Jones and I wrote the script, we wrote it with Donald in mind, and everybody said to us, Donald Pleasance will never do this movie. I mean, in 1972 <laughs> was before he, was he ever did, you know, any, any kind of exploitation or horror stuff. Yeah. He was the actor's actor. He had won every award that there was to win he was on broadway at the time doing man in yeah. the glass booth that he won a tony for yeah um i mean he was just amazing and everybody said but everybody told us that he wanted to do a comedy and when mm. we when we wrote the part of of inspector cahoon we wrote <laughs> it strictly so funny, for man. comedy yeah. and um uh so jay Jay Cantor, who 
at one time was the biggest agent in Hollywood, was the executive producer of this movie, and everybody knew him. He had been president of Universal International right before and then left there with, with Alan Ladd Jr. to open their own production company, and Deathline was one of their first movies. So anyways, people took anything Jay said very seriously. So Jay said, they're never going to look at this, but I'll send it to him. And Jay sent the script to um, Donald's agent. And so they took the offer very seriously. They sent the script to Donald. But all we sent, we didn't send the whole script. We sent Inspector Cahoon's scenes. Yeah. <laughs> Donald reads it and says, I love this character. I want to do yeah. it. He's in New York <laughs> doing Man in the Glass Booth. I fly to New York from London and have dinner with him. And we talk about it. And I then I told him about the rest. He said, I don't care about the rest of the movie. I only care about the scenes I'm in. So it's so funny. Um, so anyways, um, he agreed to I do love, it. I love how obsessed he is with tea in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> he was, he just, he just got so into that. Um, have you read, have you read, um, Sean Hogan did a monograph, uh, about Deathline? It's available on Amazon if you... I haven't. I'll have um, to check that out. That and cool. it is so brilliant. What what Sean did um, was uh, he wrote a, a, a diary, Inspector uh -huh. Cahoon's diary. And it's Inspector Cahoon writing about investigating this case. Really? And it is so brilliant. Sean just got donald's voice like you can't believe i mean the, i love the brits and and they're just so <laughs> clever and you know sean is 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 a great writer and a great critic and um and he wrote this this book that that is unbelievable but it's sean hogan and just look it up on, on um, amazon you know I can probably get you a copy of that too <laughs> oh, <that'd be> <laughs> it's, it's fairly expensive but um, worth but it, worth having. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyhow, where was I? Oh, so we were just talking about Donald working with Donald. Him. Donald is a practical joker beyond practical jokers, and he would he drove me crazy. <laughs> you know, he there's that fireplace behind his desk. Yeah. Every time he'd get up from there, he'd go. He'd like do. Oh. You know, oh, <laughs> like he bumped his head. And I'd say, Donald, are you okay? He said, of course I'm okay. I'm an actor. And <laughs> he would do this to me over and over and over again. And finally, one day he gets up and he I mean, really bangs his head on the on the thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, I thought he did. And <laughs> I go, forget it, man. You're not getting me again. He said, forget it. He said, you don't care about me. You don't care. I really banged myself this time. I said, no, 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 I'm not buying it. And he goes, and suddenly there's blood running out from between his fingers. Oh, what? And I go, like a blood capsule. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my, but he got me. I went, oh, my God, you're bleeding. And he said, no, I'm not. I'm an actor. And he shows me. <laughs> and I mean, but. Literally, you know, you talk, you, you mentioned tea. Yeah. 
when Donald wasn't on camera, he was running around getting tea for everybody. Okay, I mean, so that's a real he, thing. he just was one of the guys. He just wanted mm -hmm. to, you know, he was so kind to everybody. And I'll tell you what a great actor he was. One, one day we're rapping the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And he comes up to me and he says, I'm not on the call sheet tomorrow. I said, no, you're not shooting tomorrow. You got a day off. He said, but I'm looking at what's being shot. And he says, Dr. Bacon is doing the scene on the other side of the telephone call from when we talk about the lab results. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, who's going to do his off camera? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I'll do his off camera or somebody. He says, no, no, no. He was there when I did mine. He was there for me and I want to be there for him. And wow. he says, you don't have to pay me or nothing. Just send a car, pick me up, bring me in. I'll do the off screen and I'll go back home again. He said, but I, I owe that to my fellow actors to do that. See, that's a quality actor right there. Yeah, he, he was amazing. He was just... Sounds like he kept the set real light for you guys too. He was great. The first couple of days were a little... He and Norman Rossington, the two of them, uh -huh. just decided they had to test this young upstart i mean i was like 24 years old and yeah that's how old i am right movie. now yeah. <laughs> yeah well that's how old i was when i did that line and um uh he uh he, he really put it to me and i i guess i passed the test because by by the end of the second day we were just flying wow. and uh, you know, I mean, j just imagine, okay, you're, you're 24. Could you imagine walking onto a set on your first movie the first day? No. First day, <laughs> first movie, and there you have Donald Pleasance and Norman Rossington. Absolutely. Staring not. at you and saying, what do you want to do, boss? No. <laughs> and, I, and, and I mean, and they were just sitting there like, you know, with their arms crossed and going, "Yeah, okay, tell us what to do. And I mean, between the two of them, they'd probably been in more movies than I had seen in my entire life. And, yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, Norm, Norm Rossington, I mean, first of all, he was the Beatles manager in A Hard Day's Night. I mean, <laughs> just start there. Um, and uh, so, you know, he'd work with Dick Lester. And I mean, you know, uh -huh. between the two of them, and I mean, all the Harold Pinter plays that, that that Donald had done and his friendship with Harold Pinter. And here I am facing off to these two guys who have worked with, and, and of course the fact that Donald had worked with Roman Polanski, who is mm -hmm. to me, God. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Roman is my God is no mm -hmm. question. Um, and, uh, and as a matter of fact, when I was in pre-production on Deathline, I had one of the greatest thrills of my entire life. Um, I go out, I think it was Pine, it was either Pinewood or Shepherd, and I don't remember which studio it was, but Jeffrey Foote, who was going to be my editor on Deathline, um, was out at, at the studio cutting a movie. And um, I believe he was cutting Man in the Wilderness with John Houston. And um, 
So he said, why don't you come out and have lunch at the studio and we can talk about the movie. So I said, great. So I went out there, I get to the, to the lunch room at, at the studio and he's sitting there with Alistair McIntyre, who is another great, great, great British film editor, a legendary film editor. And uh, so we said he introduces me to Alistair and I was really kind of blown away. And I said to Alistair, what are you, what are you working on? And he says, oh, I'm doing Macbeth. And I look at him and I said, with Roman Polanski? And he says, is there another is <laughs> Macbeth there another? shooting at the moment? And I said, oh my God, you're working with Roman Polanski. And he says, yeah, and he's going to be here in about five minutes to meet me for lunch. Oh, wow. And so anyways, in walks Roman Polanski. And I'm just, what? My, my, my chin is dropped to my chest. I mean, I, I don't know what to say. I'm just like, I mean, here I am, this little snot-nosed kid. Yeah. <laughs> and there's Roman Polanski. And oh, that's insane. So Alice just says, uh, Jeff was watching me and Alistair says, okay, we're going to go have lunch. And, and Jeff says to Alistair, no, why don't you guys join us? We can, the four of us can have lunch together. And I'm going, <laughs> and I got to sit there for an hour and a half talking to Roman Polanski oh and, and talking about Donald and working with Donald because, you know, Roman had, had worked with Donald several times and, um, it was pretty amazing. It was really, really amazing. And, uh, you know, boom, boom. <laughs> no, so I, I met Roman several more times in my life. And uh, How was he as a person? He's amazing. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm so sorry what happened to him. And I, I, I truly believe he got set up. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it was a blackmail attempt that went haywire. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and to do, but, um, anyhow, I'm sorry that we lost him to the United States. Yeah. But yeah. Anyways, he's, he's a great, I mean, Rosemary's baby is number one on my list. If anybody has me do a top 10, it's, mm -hmm. uh, I think one of the greatest films that was ever made, uh, right up there with the Hitchcock films that I'll put up there on my top 10. But um, what's your favorite Hitchcock? Psycho. Psycho. Yeah. <laughs> Psycho. It's, it's, I don't even have to think about that one. Yeah. I mean, I, I love, I love a lot of the early Hitchcock stuff. Um, uh -huh. I'm a big fan yeah, of Vertigo. I, mean, I, I Vertigo is great. North by Northwest is great. Rope yeah. is great. Talking about Hitchcock in general, and Hitchcock's been a, a big influence on me. Hitchcock shot his movies before he shot his movies. His movies were shot before he ever walked on the set. He storyboarded everything. Yeah. Every shot was story, and I do the same thing. I, I uh -huh. learned from him. I studied what he did, and I do the same thing. I don't make my decisions by the time I get to the set, the only thing I have to do is direct my actors yeah, and work with the actors because my DP knows exactly what shots I want because everything's been storyboarded 
And um, so my whole crew knows, my first AD knows exactly what I'm going to shoot every day and exactly how many setups there's going to be. Mm-hmm. And all my only responsibility on that set is to check, check the camera angles, you know, to make sure the visuals are what I want them to be. But everybody's had their instructions in advance and to work with actors mm-hmm. and to get performances. And that's what I love to do. <laughs> we were going to actually go into uh, your one film, Wanted Dead or Alive. How did casting Gene Simmons happen as the character of Malak Al-Rahim? Okay, we're... <laughs> Wanted Dead or Alive was really... Bob Ramey called me. And Bob at that time was, was president of, of, uh, of the studio that was doing the picture. And he said, I have a problem and I need your help. And I said, what's that? Because, I mean, Bob had been the president of Avco Embassy when we did Vice Squad, and, and he was amazing. Um, and, and president of the studio when we did Dead and Buried. And he was the person who really tried to protect me from the changes they wanted made in the, in the movie. And I'm sure you've all seen Bob Ramey because he was president of the Academy for a long time. And he's the guy that came out and did the reading of the rules of the Oscar voting. And um, uh, so anyway, um, Bob calls me and says, I, I have a problem. He said, we have a script called Wanted Dead or Alive. That's, that's you know, we, we bought the rights to the, to the title Wanted Dead or Alive. And we had a script done. And the script is horrendous. <laughs> it's horrendous. <laughs> and we've already sold the film based on the title. So we've got a release date. We don't have a script. We don't have a movie. And I need you to, and we're facing a director strike. There was a director strike pending, which never happened, but it was pending. The DGA was uh, negotiating a new contract that wasn't going well. So he said, we need to start shooting almost immediately and we don't have a script. Can you come in? So I went in. Basically, Bob sat me down in an office, gave me the script and asked me to read the script right there. I read the script. He says, can you fix it? I said, no. I said, this script (laughs) is beyond fixing. The only thing we could do is throw this script away and start from scratch. And he said, okay. (laughs) But I, we, we, we need this. You got two weeks. Oh no. (laughs) I got two weeks. And Denise Denovi, um, who went on to, you know, produce Batman um, later. But Denise at that time was his assistant. And Denise says to me, hey, Gary, do you want a co-writer? And I said, yeah, that would be great. She said, I just work with a writer who's absolutely unbelievable. And I think you guys would get on like crazy. And that was Brian Taggart, who, you know, Brian and I went on to write a lot of movies together. But that's how we met. And um, uh, so Denise put us together. I went out, I went and met Brian for dinner that night. 
We talked about it. We decided to do it. They made a deal with Brian in the morning, and Brian and I got together and started working literally 24-7. We, they set us up in an office with Arthur Sarkissian, who was the producer. Uh-huh. And we just started writing. And we literally worked for a little less than two weeks, uh, day and night. We had, a, we had an assistant typing for us on a computer. It was the first time I ever did a script on a computer. It was an old IBM Model 50, which had 50 megabytes of RAM. Oh, wow. <laughs> was it a good experience or a bad experience? It was a great experience. I, I've, I've been married to computers ever since then. Yeah. Um, and uh, I've always been, uh, technolo- I love technology. Oh, me and, too. Uh, uh, so anyhow, um, we just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and um, Jeez. Uh, gave the script over to, to Bob. And uh, he went, let's go. And we started pre-production, and and there we went. I mean, I to this day I wish we'd had a normal time to write the script because I think that I really like Wanted Dead or Alive, but I think the script is bland. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's not the script that I would have written had I had a couple of months to write it, even instead of a couple of weeks. It's never good to be forced to no. like finish something fast. Yeah, but it's still an entertaining movie, and you know, years later, it's appreciated heavily. You know. Yeah, it's it's you know, and working with Rutger was just you know un- unbelievable. It was great. Okay, now how Gene got involved? Yeah, is... I want to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, pre-production was you know, writing was like this and pre-production was like this instead of like, you know, instead of big, you know, we, we had no time. We had to start shooting from the time we finished the script. I think we had four weeks or five weeks to get ready to start shooting. And, um, and then John Alcott was supposed to shoot the movie for me because we had just done, you know, vice squad together. And Johnny got was sick, and his wife Sue called me and said, uh, "Gary, can you let Johnny out of this one? I really don't want him working. He really needs to rest." And and I went, "Yeah, I guess so." And I mean, because they were friends, and I, and that's so I met Alex Napomnishi. So now I'm working with a new DP who I've never worked with, and I got all kinds wow. of stuff going on, and we're trying to get everything going. That's a lot to deal with. And we're casting like crazy. And, yeah. um, and you know, ended up with Rutger, uh, who was not my first choice. But no. I, I, I love the fact that I, that I had him. Who was um, the first choice before Rutger? Mel Gibson. Oh, wow. <laughs> Mel was wanted to do it, too. The problem came down to money. Right. Um, yeah, and that's it. Uh, Mel really didn't have a presence yet. He'd only done Mad Max mm-hmm. and and Road Warrior were his only two movies at that time. And mm-hmm. uh, I just loved him in Road Warrior. I had just seen it. It wasn't even re- released yet, really. 
Wow. And um, uh, he, he was in America and he had a new agent and everything was going on and everybody was all excited about him. And I got him the script and he loved the script and he wanted to do it. And, but he wanted a million dollars, which at that time was like, well, oh. Rutger wanted a million dollars too, but Rutger was willing to take half a million cash and half a million deferred. Okay, so that's helpful. Uh, Mel's agents that. were not willing to do that, so I ended up with Rutger. Yeah. It would have been a different movie with Mel Gibson. I think mm-hmm. as as great an actor as Rutger is, it didn't help the box office. So you and, think if Mel was in it, it would have been a lot bigger? If Mel was in it, it would have been a blockbuster. Wow. Without question. How How is Gene as a person? Because I've heard some horror so, stories. So, okay, here we go. <laughs> So I'm sorry. I keep going off into tangents. No, you're fine. It's okay. I'm loving all your stories. A lot of editing to do. Um, No, this is great. This is gold. So anyhow, so like I'm under real pressure. I mean, it's just like unbelievable. We're in in the studio 20 hours a day trying to get all the pre-production done, all the casting done. My Mm. assistant comes in and says, "Uh, Gary, there's Gene Simmons is on the telephone for you. And I said, what? Gene Simmons? Yeah, you know, from Kiss. I said, yeah, I know who Gene Simmons is. What does Gene Simmons want? He oh said, he, he, he wants to read for a part in a movie. I said, oh, fuck. Forget about it. I mean, did, How did he even I'll, hear call, about it? I'll call him back. Somebody, his yeah. agent sent him the script. You know, the, okay. the script had been sent out to all the agencies. and. Oh. Like so anyways, an hour later, she comes walking in again. She said, he's calling back. He wants to talk to you. And I said, I'll call him back. Two hours later, I'm sitting in a me- meeting with Arthur Sarkisian, and, and uh-huh. Judy comes in again and says to me, Gary, Gene's on, Gene Simmons is on the phone again. And oh, my God. Arthur says, what does Gene Simmons want? And I said, he wants a part in a movie. And Arthur says, that might be good, you know. I said, I said, that's all I need is some drugged out rock and roller in the middle of <laughs> this kind of craziness that's going on. And yeah. Arthur says, you know what, just talk to him. Even if you don't give him a part, maybe we can get him to write some music for the movie. So there I said, go. okay. So... I take the call and I'm blown away. There's this voice on the other end of the phone that says, Mr. Sherman, this is Mr. Gene Simmons. And I would truly like to speak to you about doing a part in your movie. He said, I could be very helpful to you. He said, I speak fluent Arabic, three or four dialects, and I speak (laughs) fluent Hebrew. And the, the part that I want to play, which is Malach al-Rahim, speaks all those languages. And I could not only speak them well for you, but I could help you translate and, and do everything else with all the other characters who have to speak Arabic or Hebrew. Uh, so you were sold there. I, I'm going, well, I said, where are you? Let's meet. So he said, well, I'm in Detroit uh-huh. about to do a concert. But um, uh, 
I have my own plane, so I could fly in, meet you tomorrow for lunch, and then fly back and be back here for my concert. I said, that's up to you. I'm not promising anything. Well, anyways, he flew in. We went out to lunch. He just blew me away. Because if there's anything that Gene isn't, is a drugged out <laughs> rock and roller. I mean, yeah, he doesn't even drink alcohol. He's never had a drug in his entire life. He doesn't take aspirin. Jeez. Gene is just, he's, he's Mr. Clean except with his dick. And he breathes fire. Yeah. And, I mean, he, he, if his dick doesn't get wet twice a day, he thinks he's going to die. Oh, no. So, um, but, uh, and money. Money is, uh, money is his life. Yeah, he probably comes out of the project. I can make us a lot of money. Just cast yeah, <laughs> that, that's that's all. It's money's everything in the world to Gene. That's all he yeah. thinks about is money. So, um, did he ask for it, a million dollars? No, he he said he he didn't even care what he made on the movie. He wanted to do uh -huh. the part because okay. he thought this is what's gonna this will make him a movie star. Yeah, and so anyways, we ended up going with it, and it was fantastic. He was fantastic. And he was so intimidated by Rutger. He just would like sit there and watch Rutger work. Cause I mean, Rutger is, you know, one of, was one of the world's brilliant actors. Oh, for sure. And, uh, so it was, Gene learned a lot from Rutger and, um, and he really appreciated getting to, to do the work. What's your most fond memory of Rutger? <laughs> you know what? As a matter of fact, I was just talking about Rutger yesterday. Somebody called me to just talk about Rutger. I, I have a bunch of fond memories of Rutger because he, he and I got on like crazy and, and we both cook. So we used to cook a lot together. And um, and then he was best friends with, with Whoopi Goldberg while we were doing the movie. He and Whoopi met and became buddies. And Whoopi was on the set a lot. Really? And, uh, yeah, it was quite fun. But anyways, um, okay, I'll tell you the funny story rather than the serious story because I think that's what you want. When we were when we were shooting the end sequence, which was supposed to be a chemical plant, we actually shot it at a power plant in, in Seal Beach. I don't know okay. if you guys are familiar with that big power plant. There's four giant towers that are coal-powered steam generators. That basically create the electricity from every place from Long Beach down to San Diego. And yeah, it's like right um, off the 405, right? Is it off right, the right. You can see yeah. it from the 405, yeah. Oh, okay. Anyhow, we went there and made a deal with the power company to shoot. And why there's four towers is three towers are always operating, and the fourth tower is under maintenance. And so it's not operating. So we looked at their schedule and made it and made it work so that we could shoot in the tower. We needed a week to shoot in the tower. And <clears throat> so the, the towers are down for like three weeks when they're under maintenance. So that would give us a week to prep it and a week to shoot it. And then the last week to get all of our stuff out of there before the tower had to go back online. Because when the towers are online, the noise 
is unbelievable. I mean, you have to stand this close, you know, like an inch away from somebody and shout in their ear in order to be heard. So uh, there was no way that you could shoot in a tower that was operating. So it took about a week to prep everything, to hang the lights, to, you know, as I said, I had everything storyboarded. So we knew exactly where every shot was. So we pre-lit everything in the tower. We set all the charges and everything for the special effects for the guns and the, and the gunfire and the ricochets and, um, and the explosion with the hand grenade and all of that stuff. So, and then we're supposed to start shooting. The day before we're supposed to start shooting, one of the other towers went down. <laughs> and they had to put the tower that we had prepped online. Oh, no. So we're going, what do we do? I mean, we couldn't figure out what the hell, how, how are we going to do this? Yeah. Anyway, bottom line is that we had no choice. I won't go through all the details, but we had no choice, but we had to shoot in an active tower with that noise. So the sound guys rigged up like multiple radio mics on, on Gene and on Rutger so that we could at least record a scratch track which we would use to do ADR, you know, dialogue replacement, you know, looping. Yeah. Um, afterwards and have to replace their voices because you couldn't record, <laughs> you could not record sound in there. Well, no. so first of all, we had the noise to put up with. So everybody had to, we, we all looked like we were from outer space. We all had to wear masks with a microphone inside here and headsets so that we could talk to each other because otherwise you couldn't hear one another. The other thing is that the power company said we all had to wear hard hats. So suddenly the crew turns into a sea of yellow hats with masks on our faces. Okay. Nobody can recognize anybody else. There's just a sea of yellow hats and face masks. And um, so the problem was everybody was really upset because nobody could ever find me. Yeah. You can't just shout, hey, Gary, where are you? You know, I was just thinking and if, that, you, yeah. if you put it into the microphone, hey, Gary, where are you? You go, yeah, I'm right here. <laughs> nobody knows. <laughs> and in this sea of, of yellow hats. So it, it was a problem. So my, the prop master says, I've solved the problem. And he shows up with a hard hat that has runner lights all over it. I, it looked like a Christmas tree on my head. <laughs> so I'm, I have to wear this stupid Christmas tree on my head so people know where I am. And they, you know, I become the center and boom. So anyway, so we're, we're shooting the sequences. When we're shooting the action sequences, it's not a problem. But, you know, at the end of that sequence where there's those really intimate scenes between Rutger and, and Gene, uh, and, and I really needed emotion from both of them in those scenes, we get to shooting that scene, and we're there amid this noise. and uh, I, I have to stand, you know, like inches away from each of them. They had to put their heads like right next to each other, and I had to stick my mouth right in between so that I could shout into their ears and, Mm-hmm. Doo-doo. 
anyways, every time we tried to shoot that scene, Rutger would just break into total laughter. <laughs> and I, I mean, we'd be in this middle of this, like, and suddenly Rutger would just start laughing. And we went take after take, and Rutger just kept breaking up and laughing. And so did oh, Gene. No. <laughs> and I said, what the fuck is wrong with you guys? And, <laughs> and so finally I took them out of the tower, and we went outside where we could actually hear each other. And Rutger says to me, how am I supposed to do a serious scene with you wearing a Christmas tree on your head? Mm-hmm. He said, every time I look at you, all I can do is laugh. <laughs> he said, you know, when we were doing the action scenes, that was fine. But he's, and Gene says, I have the same problem. <laughs> so I had to switch out my hat and put on a hat that didn't have the, the Christmas lights all over it so that we could <laughs> shoot the scene. We went back in one take. Boom. We got it. It was fantastic. Oh, good. <laughs> Rudger seemed like an absolute trip to work with. You know, I don't think there will ever be anyone else like him. No, Rudger demanded perfection of himself and everyone around him. Working with Rudger Mm -hmm. was probably the most exhausting experience of my career. Really? He just, he absolutely demanded perfection. Mm -hmm. And he wouldn't accept anything less from, from you or from from himself and uh, you know it's that, that scene where he cries in the in the car when he's in the car with uh, Robert Guillaume mm-hmm. he took me aside before we shot that scene he says I'm supposed to cry in this scene I said yeah he says that's a problem I said why he said I've never cried in real life how do you expect me to cry <laughs> on camera oh, and he God. he wanted me to get into his head and get him into a space where he could cry. Mm. And we did. I, 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 we were sitting by that chain link fence and I just got into his head and I got him to cry. And he, with tears running down his face, he says, I'm ready to go do the scene. It was amazing. And that scene is amazing. Oh God. So, Have you ever seen him in a hobo with a shotgun? Yeah, <laughs> that was a great, great one. Oh, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, but I, to me, because of who Rutger is, um, I was kind of saddened by that film because uh, he, he, he yeah. should have been doing roles that Laurence Olivier was playing. Yeah, in, instead of Hobo with a Shotgun, but that must have been a super low budget movie too. It was a super low budget movie. He probably didn't make much on that at all. Due to him. Yeah. The end of his career was not happy. No. But in the very least, he left behind an amazing legacy. Nobody's ever. Oh, yeah. I mean, starting with the Verhoeven films that he did in Holland with Soldier of Orange and uh, Turkish Delight. And I mean, he, he made some unbelievable movies. Well, even Nighthawks, Blade Runner. I mean, Blade Hawk. Runner is the most common talked about, but he's got way more good movies than just that. Big yeah. time. Even yeah. the, there was a split second, which was like a, it was like a really, it was an interesting one, but yeah. But yeah, split some, second was a really yeah. good, was really, he was really good. Yeah. I mean, he was amazing. 
and and hitcher the hitcher, hitcher yeah don't forget yes. the hitcher. hitcher he was he was yeah. terrifying in that movie that i when they were trying to when the studio was trying to talk me into working with rutger and in, in wanted dead or alive um the hitcher had just been shot wasn't released yet and they sent me over a print to look at and it, i was blown away by it i was just blown away i think it's a great film big time i agree and sin city too oh yeah yeah he was he was amazing rutger very I'm, prolific actor so we definitely want to know some stuff about Vice Squad. Love Vice Squad. Yeah. That's one of my favorites. Did you have to do a lot of research on the crimes and prostitution that occurred in Los Angeles at the time? When I was offered coming out of Dead and Buried and, uh -huh. and the trauma that went on at the end of Dead and Buried um, and Bob Ramey called me into his office at AFCO Embassy and said, okay, you need to just walk away from Dead and Buried mm -hmm. and stop all of this. I'm going to offer you another. And he says, I love Dead and Buried, and I loved your original cut of Dead and Buried. So I'll tell you what, here's a pile of scripts. And he hands me a pile of scripts. He says, take these home, read these, pick one. You're going to rewrite it, and you're going to direct it. And I won't change a word, and the studio won't make you do anything that you don't want to do. And Vice Squad will be your movie. Or, I mean, it wasn't Vice Squad. He said, this movie will be your movie, whichever one you choose. I take this pile of scripts home, and I, I read the scripts, and Vice Squad just stuck out for me. The script wasn't very good, the original no. script. But the idea of it, I just found fascinating. And my girlfriend at the time when we were living together was an executive at Warner Brothers. And so I gave her the script to read. And she said, you don't want to do this movie. I said, no, no, no. I said, the idea of a film that takes place almost in real time. Yeah. And the whole film is a chase. Think of it like that. And she said, wow, that would really change it completely. And I mm -hmm. said, yeah, that's what, that's what I want to do with it. So I went back in the next morning. And I said to Ramey, okay, I want to do this one. And, but I, this is what I want to do with it. I want to make it, I want to, starts at sunset, ends at sunrise, mm -hmm. and the whole movie's a chase. Mm -hmm. And, and that's what we should do. And um, the original film was written by a commander at LAPD who worked in Vice. Mm -hmm. And it was a lot of the things that happened in the movie actually happened to him in real life. And that's, it was kind of autobiographical. So I met him and we worked together and he said to me, I, I said, you know, I really love this, but I said, I know nothing about police work. And he says, well, why don't you go to the police academy? So he arranged for me to do uh, uh, a like quick course at the police academy over over a few weeks and and that's what i did in the daytime i went and took courses at the police academy and at night i rode as a second man in a two-man vice car for for six weeks while i was rewriting the script and um and that's what we did so i mean i did a lot of i <laughs> 
I actually got out there on the street and they would just set me up and give me a badge and I was actually arresting prostitutes and taking them in the car and <laughs> talking to them. At one point, they arrested me and took me into the lockup at Hollywood and, and cuffed, cuffed me to, uh, to a bench with what? a whole bunch what? of other people who were in there so that I could sit in there and talk to these people as if I was one of them. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's wild. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, on Vice Squad, I did a lot of research. And, oh, that's the best um, way to do it. You know, and that film is really like, cops love that film because it's so real. I mean, yeah. what what happens in that film is what really happens. And, and it still uh, happens. Well, yeah, because you know. it, it, was, it was really intense, especially Nina Blackwood's portrayal as the character of Ginger. I mean, did she have any trouble with having to do her death scene? No, Nina was great. Nina was an incredible actor. And I, She's I, I think we lost a great actor to MTV when she got, it was while we were doing uh, Vice Squad, she said, I got to fly to New York. I, I just got an offer on something to become something that they're calling a, a video DJ. Hmm. And I said, what's that? You know, and she says, I don't know, they're setting up this thing called MTV and they're going to do videos live and and stuff on on television and a cable network. No, yeah. none of us, you know, I mean, this was a whole new idea. And Nina goes off and she gets cast and she becomes, you know, one of the original uh, VJs on uh, on MTV, which became her career. I mean, I'm sure, you know, Nina's never looked back, mm -hmm. but, um, but there was somebody who had a, an incredible career ahead of her as an actor. She's really good. I mean, when she came in and read for us, cause I mean, she wasn't Nina Blackwood. She was just Nina Blackwood. You know, she was yeah. an actor named, named Nina Blackwood. She wasn't, and she just mm -hmm. blew us out of our, blew our socks off when she came in and read for that part and uh she was great was there any guerrilla style filmmaking involved in the filming it was all guerrilla style filmmaking it was guerrilla style filmmaking although again everything everything was was uh uh storyboarded like i always do i mean Every shot, I knew exactly what we were going to do, but we were just out there on the streets of Hollywood mm -hmm. um, with, you know, doing guerrilla filmmaking with John Alcott as the DP after he had just finished another Kubrick film. Um, but Johnny and I were friend, had been friends for a long time, and I called him and I said, okay, you want to come do a Down and Dirty in Los Angeles? And he said, absolutely. So he was there. <laughs> so we had a... You know, one of the world's great DPs doing this kind of sleazy Hollywood movie. Yeah. One of my favorite uh, guerrilla filmmakers was Larry Cohen. Yeah, Larry. Larry was great. We lost him last year. I know. It's such a yeah. bummer. Yeah. Um, I've been actually, we do filming location videos where we go revisit the filming locations of our favorite movies and stuff. And I was wanting to do this one, and then I found out one of my friends has already done it, and he actually did it for the Blu-ray of Vice Squad, Robert Pattinson. Oh, yeah. Yeah, or Patterson, yep. yeah. 
Spice Squad was shot completely on location. Yeah. Uh, we did a couple of scenes in the studio, but, and we shot, com every day call was at sundown and rap was at sunrise. So the, the crew loved doing that, shooting all at night. And you know it all. It's all night exteriors, ninety percent of the film. And we shot every every inch of film was shot at night. It's crazy. It's crazy to see compared to like back then at the time, how much Hollywood Boulevard has drastically changed. It like looks nothing like how it did back then. Just when I when I go back and see all those movies that were filmed on Hollywood Boulevard and even Sunset Boulevard, it's just it blows your mind away at how much it's different now. I'm just dying to go there and just like line up the shots though. I want to see what, what the differences are, you know? Oh, huge differences. If anything, <laughs> it's, it's so fun to do that. Yeah, it, it is fun. I mean, it, it's funny. I just got back. Well, before the pandemic, I just got back from London and oh, wow. uh, I, I was speaking in London and, um, uh, I was staying in a hotel not far from Russell Square. Actually, the hotel was on Russell Square, but from Russell Square Tube Station. And yeah. I just went over to Russell Square Tube Station and stood every place that I remembered a camera set up mm -hmm. from Deathline and just looked at how different it is today than it was then. I mean, no, no matter where you go, that's what you're going to see. But Hollywood, Hollywood Boulevard's changed a lot. It was pretty sleazy back then. Oh yeah, big time. Like uh, even all my friends that were around there in the '80s and even the '90s, they've just told me it, how much it's changed. Like, and it was back then, it was almost like a wasteland. <laughs> well, I mean, it was crowded twenty-four-seven. But you know, when we were shooting by Squad, and it was all on location. We did not have one night, not one, in all the time we were shooting that we weren't interrupted by real police activity. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of shots in the film where a police car goes screaming through in the background. And those were real. Wow. I mean, every night there was gunshots and somewhere <laughs> and, and police, you know, we were shut down a couple of times. I mean, for, you know, for minutes because we had so many yeah. real LAPD working on the, on the film with us that we were pretty well protected. Nobody mm -hmm. bothered us, but, um, you know, and because we had so much LAPD of one location, we had one night that there was suddenly there were police everywhere. So we had to move the location which we did, and we didn't have a permit for the other location, but we had so much LAPD on the show that we didn't have to worry about it. That whole scene where Ramrod breaks loose from the backseat of the cop car in the handcuffs is very genius. <laughs> was oh, that hard to shoot? Thank you. No, it was fun. I mean, it, again, you know, it, it was all storyboarded. We knew exactly shot by shot what we had to do. Yeah. Um, and this the, the effects guys and the prop guys on the show were great. And, and my transportation, you know, and that was, that, that car was all cabled up to be able to climb that other car. And then the rollover of the car, mm -hmm. the, the car was all pre-cabled to, to do all of that. So, 
and and the, all the you know the thing is that today you got CGI and you got r- remote mm-hmm. cameras that you can look at with video and but we didn't have that on mm-hmm. on Vice Squad on those car chase scenes I was in the camera car I was oh. sitting right there <laughs> next to the camera while we were doing all of that stuff we were all strapped in we had helmets on and oh, yeah. you know safety first but but uh, yeah, that's I, one of the things I'm most proud of, I think, in my whole career is with all the action stuff and all the explosions and all the gun play and everything else in all of my movies. No one has ever even gotten slightly hurt on one of my films. Wow. Was the funeral wedding scene in the original <laughs> script or was that, or was that uh, your idea? Love that. Scene. No, that was in the that that was in the original that was from the original script before wow. I even did my rewrite. Um, that was an actual thing. That was an actual pervert that used to exist in Hollywood who had a big mansion in <laughs> so Hancock weird. Park and used to have women brought there and he would do that whole wedding thing. And but you know, <laughs> here's what did change. I had John Alcott who had just done Barry Lyndon, which was yeah. all lit with candles. Uh, you know, there are no electric lights used on Barry Lyndon. So right. I said to John, I said, you know what? Let's shoot this marriage scene in the mansion, all with candles. And he said, <laughs> forget about it. It's too difficult. I said, no, 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 let's do it. And we did it. And that whole scene is lit with no electric light. It's all candles. We That's actually amazing. shot that scene by candlelight. Jeez. Is that hard to do? Or, I mean, does it take a, a while to set that up? <clears throat> it it to took sure a while to set up. But, I mean, we had other stuff. You know, we were... The the props department just really had to work their, their tail off. And we actually... The, the guys who did the candles on Barry Lyndon... Um, Tony and Joe Teeger, two brothers who were prop guys, uh, um, did Deathline with me. So I knew them. And I knew mm-hmm. them when they were doing Barry Lyndon. So I just put my guys from 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 Vice Squad in touch with, with them to get some, some uh, tricks <laughs> from them on how to light a set with, uh, with candles. It was definitely a different movie. Like when I first saw it, I was just like, this is interesting. I've never seen something like this before. So no, it was, it definitely became a favorite of mine instantly, you know, but yeah, no, I thought you did great on it. Thank you. Yeah. It's, I I think probably Deathline is probably, I'm Deathline. Um, Vice Squad is, is probably my favorite of my movies. Deathline Deathline's my firstborn, so it's, uh, you know, in my heart. But So the um, final product, that's your favorite, Vice Squad? Vice Squad is absolutely my favorite of my movies. There's it, an honesty to Vice Squad that, and it's my movie. Yeah. You know, as much as I love Dead and Buried, there's parts of Dead and Buried that aren't my movie. I was pushed to do them. Um, yeah. uh, Deathline, you know, is my first film, and... You know, it, it's like, it, 
there's lots I would do differently if I was to do Deathline again. But mm-hmm. Vice Squad, I, I, there's nothing in Vice Squad that I apologize for. Mm-hmm. Now the film you get bothered with the most, Poltergeist 3. <laughs> Poltergeist okay. 3 was the film that I shouldn't have done. Um, yeah. What were you, were you gonna, did you have a specific question or you just want me to We've got a ramble? couple, but you, you could say what you were going to say. When I was offered to do, you know, it was Jay Cantor and Alan Ladd Jr. who were the executive producers on, um, mm-hmm. on Deathline, who gave me Deathline. Uh, yeah. And they were now uh, the chairman and president of MGM. And um, so they called me and said, we want you to do Polar Guys 3. And I said, thank you, but no thank you. I have no yeah. interest whatsoever in doing Poltergeist 3 Yeah, uh, for many reasons. I mean, first of all, all of my films have ba- had a basis in, 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 in social commentary or political commentary. Yeah. And, um, and there's no way I can see pushing social or political commentary into, um, into Poltergeist 3. Yeah. And I, I don't want to do a sequel. I have no interest in doing a sequel. And they said, mm-hmm. no, 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 we really want you to do this. And I said, <clears throat> I really don't want to do this. Yeah. <laughs> and they just kept coming at me and saying, you know, we gave you a death line, you owe us, and we're friends, and da 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 And we need it, and we need it done for a budget, and, you know, um, and we know you can do it. Yeah. And I said, okay, two conditions okay there were more but two main yes number one i shoot it in chicago in the john hancock building that was a because i i i grew up watching the john hancock building being built yeah it's a fantastic structure and and i love architecture and um and i said i want to do the biggest haunted house that ever existed yeah and since it's one of the largest buildings in the world, it would definitely be the largest haunted house. <laughs> and um, uh, and two, I want to shoot all the effects practical. Yep. No opticals, no CGI, nothing. And, and every, in camera, too. E- that's what I'm saying. All practical. Every inch of film is going to be camera negative. Yep. And they said, Laddie looks at me and says, are you fucking crazy? (laughs) I said, well, you know that already. (laughs) And he says, can you really do it? And I said, yeah. I said, I grew up. My first job in the film industry was working in an optical lab where I ran an Oxbury. Or I was an assistant on an Oxbury. Eventually, I got to run the Oxbury. And, you know, a multi-head, multi-projector camera where you do where you do compositing of internag and negative and traveling mats and the way yeah. we used to do optical effects analog um, and I knew that stuff inside out and I said you know if you can do it post production you can do it production and I know how to do that stuff I grew up doing that stuff and they said okay and is it going to cost us more or less? I said, it's going to cost you the same because production will be a little longer, but post-production will be a, 
a breeze mm-hmm. <clears throat> and we'll save all that CGI money and optical money and everything else. Mm-hmm. So they said, okay. And that's what we did. And anyhow, Brian and I wrote the script and, um, and we made the movie. I mean, it, it pre-production went on forever because there was so mm-hmm. much work to do in order to do the effects practical. Mm-hmm. And um, and then Heather died. Yeah, and we lost well, a great, great child actor. Yeah, we, we had an ending written originally yeah. that was going to cost a fortune. <coughs> The last 17 pages of the script leading into the ending were going to cost more than the rest of the script altogether to shoot. Mm-hmm. And the boys said to me, isn't there some way we can save some money here? We don't want to spend that money. Yeah. And so I wrote a different ending that we, that we shot that was done for like a third of the amount of money that the original ending was going to cost. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like it, and they didn't like it, and nobody liked it. And we finished the film with that ending, and we went out and previewed it, and everybody hated it. Yeah, <laughs> Audiences hated it. I hated it. Yeah. So they said, okay, let's go back and shoot your original ending. So we started to get set up to shoot the original ending, and we were in the process of, of mm-hmm. doing that. And Dick Smith and, and John Caglione and everyone were working on the effects to, to do this, to do the original ending we wanted to do. And I'm in Chicago and, and we're getting ready to, to do, put all the pre-production together to do this. And um, uh, I get a telephone call from David Wardlow, who was Heather's agent. Yeah. So we need to have a, a conference call with, with Jay and Laddie and, Dick Berger and you and Barry Bernardi was the producer of the film. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I said, what's going on? He says, uh, we'll, let, we'll set up the call for later. So we're all, mm-hmm. Barry was in Chicago with me, as was Ed Letting, our, our production manager. They were all at my apartment mm-hmm. um, in Chicago. And uh, uh and um, the conference call comes through. We're all on the phone. Mm-hmm. And David said, Heather died this morning. Mm-hmm. And Laddie just said, Gary, Barry, get on a plane. Fly back here right away. So anyway, so we flew back and we met in Laddie's office at, at uh, MGM and the decision at that point was that we were going to abandon the film. Yeah. We didn't want to. Laddie says, I don't want anything to do with a film with a dead 12-year-old in it. Mm-hmm. And so we decided we were not going to do the film. Sure. The next day was Heather's funeral. I was a pallbearer at her yeah. funeral, which was like the worst day of my life. Yeah. Because I absolutely adored that little girl. I loved her. I mean, she was amazing. My girlfriend and I wanted to adopt her. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> we used to spend weekends with her. We would take her out to places and to do. We just loved it. The three of us were like a real team. <clears throat> Anyhow, um, with the funeral came and went and then I flew back to Chicago because I was in pre-production as well on a television series that I was shooting the pilot in Chicago mm -hmm. and uh, or I'd shot the pilot in Chicago and we were now going to go to series and the series was going to shoot in Chicago which was Sable and uh, I get a call from the studio and they said from Dick Berger actually and Dick says gotta finish the movie we have to finish the movie. Yeah. And I said, how are we going to finish the movie? I said, we're not going to release the movie with that ending that sucks. He yeah. said, well, come up with a different ending that you can shoot without Heather. And so I did. Mm -hmm. And we, yeah, we used a, a double for Heather and it was awful. And it was just, you know, none of us gave a shit to tell you the truth. Yeah. I mean, like the, <clears throat> the actor who who plays Scott, uh -huh. you know, um, Donna's boyfriend in the movie was not available because he was at he was at college and he was in the middle of finals when we were shooting yeah. this. And we said, well, he's supposed to come back through from the other side with them because he'd been pulled to the other side through the puddle. Yeah. And, well, if he's not there, he's not there. He stays on the other side. Yeah, right. So anyways, when they came back, they came back without Scott because he wasn't yeah. available for the day that we were shooting this uh, this new ending mm -hmm. or this substitute ending. And uh, we shot it and recut from what we had and tried to make everything work. And I don't think any of it works. The last, if if the last ten minutes of that film wasn't there, I would be much happier with the film. And then, because of the fact that the original ending was like seventeen pages, and mm -hmm. the ending we shot was four pages, we were short, and so I had to stretch stuff like that party sequence. Yeah, no, uh, I read about this. Yeah, the party sequence is stretched. A lot of sequences are stretched. There's all kinds of stuff in the film that wouldn't have been in the film had we shot the ending because we uh, we needed to get the film to 91 minutes. So, yeah. so I needed to just take whatever we could take. Mm -hmm. And we stretched the title sequences a little longer and whatever we had to tweak, we tweaked mm -hmm. to make the film the delivery length that it had to be. So it's not my favorite film, but... I'm very proud of the special effects. Just about to say, if without the yeah. special effects, I mean, that's definitely what saves it all because your, your use of special effects in there are amazing. Well, thank you. Especially practical effects, you know? You can never beat practical effects. No, practical effects are what horror is all about. CGI Screw doesn't CGI. belong in horror. I CGI agree. belongs <laughs> in sci-fi. CGI is sci-fi. Horror is practical effects. Even practical effects in sci-fi, it makes it so much better, you know? Yeah. Well, but in sci-fi, it works. I mean, you know. It does. You, you, you couldn't do Star Wars without CGI. No, 
Yeah. I would actually love to see that. That'd be hilarious. <laughs> be like the best parody ever. But are any of the Marvel movies, you know, the superhero movies, <laughs> yeah. they they exist, you know, to for for CGI or you know, um, mm-hmm. it, it's lots. But horror films should be practical effects, and in fact, you know, I've been doing a lecture series that I've traveled all over the world doing, where I expose how we did all the effects in um, in Poltergeist Three. It's been really mm-hmm. fun. Have you come to LA to do that yet? Uh, I have never done it in LA. Um, oh, I, I would love to go it. Um, I probably will at some point when, when one can yeah. travel again, I, I had it booked everywhere. Uh, I had, I think this, this period of this beginning of this year, I had eight venues booked to do the lecture mm, and no, I got canceled. Uh, yeah, whether you can't travel and can't put people in. Yeah. I've been thinking about doing it online, you doing should. it as a as a Zoom oh, webinar, yeah. but it's pretty complicated mm-hmm. to set up. Because yeah. uh, and I like doing it with a live audience. I don't yes. want to record it because getting yeah. the the questions are fantastic. So mm-hmm. I would limit the number of people that could come on a Zoom webinar if I do it that way, and I'll do it multiple times. Yeah, and. Um, I just did it in in Wales at the University of Aberystwyth, the University of Wales, the Aberystwyth mm-hmm. campus, and <clears throat> it was fantastic. Seventeen hundred people in a in a wow. lecture hall. What? Wow! And it was. It, I'm standing there, and this lecture hall goes on for days in front of me, and it's packed. It was mm-hmm. supposed to be in a 900-seat cinema, and they sold out, and they decided to move it to this lecture hall. And it wow. Was, uh, was it there was a lot of like, promoting fantastic. going on, or did this just kind of just happen? It was in conjunction with the Abattoir Festival. They, they have a big oh, horror okay. festival oh. in Aberystwyth every year, and so they, they promoted it through. But it was mainly students at the film school. They have a, they have a great film school at, uh, at Aberystwyth. And um, plus, they had everybody there for the film festival, so it was very cool, pretty fantastic. And uh, wow. you know, I did it, you know, and I we we did it for Rue Morgue magazine at uh, at the Royal and in in, um, in Toronto and filled up that theater, which is pretty big. And mm-hmm. we were and one of the things I was supposed to be doing was we were going to do it at the Music Box in Chicago. And that's like a 900 or 800 seat theater. Yeah. So it's kind of fun doing it with a big audience like that. Well, I can imagine. I, that's really cool. You know, I show clips and then I got it all on my computer and um, yeah, and I can I pull ask. everything up and we can watch scenes over and over again. And then I have all the overheads, yeah. all the storyboards, the script pages, how the script oh, pages so were cool. marked up. And it's all up on the screen, so everybody can see everything. And is this for all your films, or just like a select couple of them? No, I'm just doing this for for Poltergeist, just the effects just of Poltergeist. Polter. It's a, I see. It, it with the Q and A, it's about two and a half to three hours. So yeah, just going through all the effect. I go through every every effect in Poltergeist Three. Speaking of the special effects and all that. What was your favorite special effect to work on in Poltergeist 3? 
Um, when Heather's on the bed with the speaking spell and she gets up and the camera tracks away from her and she comes to the window and suddenly the camera's outside the window and you see the reflections of the city in the window and you see her in the mirror and what's going on on one side is not going on on the other. I mean, it is just a combination of doing so many different kinds of effects at the same time to get mm -hmm. that because where the camera is, the camera should be re being reflected in the mirror and it's not. Mm -hmm. And how did you get from a close up of her on the bed to being outside the window and seeing the reflections of the city mm -hmm. behind, you know, in, in, in the glass? and you're hanging 80 floors above the world. Do <laughs> uh, doop. I mean, if we could, if we could show the scene, you'd, you'd understand what, what it is more, but I mean, figuring out how to do that shot was just, and actually I stole something that I had done in Deathline to, to be able to do that shot. Um, in, in Deathline, in the big, the big beginning of the big tracking shot, you know, the, the seven and a half minute tracking shot in Deathline, um, <clears throat> I, uh, and the, you know, it does a 360 of the room and then backs out through the door. And we realize that we, and the camera then comes through the window, the little window in the door, and you're in the other room. Because we, what we did was we actually carried the door on the dolly in Deathline and did the 360 pan with the door, you know, the lens, the lens was sticking through the hole on the door. And then when mm -hmm. we backed out through the door, the door, the prop guys grabbed the door and held the door in place while the camera pulled through and you could, you know, uh, see the door and see coming through the door. We did the same thing in, in Poltergeist. Um, I had the window pressed up against the lens, carried on the dolly as we did the shot back away from, from Heather. And when we get to the actual where the window is, the window hydraulically was sucked into its position and then the camera continued back so that we were shooting through the window. Mm -hmm. It's probably hard to explain in just words. You have to really see it. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Yeah, I get it. How did you pull off the crack in the elevator glass? Um, that was done with hydraulics. Okay. Uh, there was there was a set, you know, and the wall was built, and there was a roller on the back of. I keep showing you guys, and I know we're only the audience is only hearing this. There was a roller <laughs> pressed against the back of the glass, which we could control the pressure to the nth degree. I mean, we had total control over the pressure. And as the roller rolled and we'd increased the pressure on the back of the mirror, the mirror actually broke. And there was mylar uh, that had been laminated onto the front of the mirror, clear um, mylar, so that the mirror wouldn't shatter and it would only crack. Yeah. It was a lot of, it was a lot of work, and this Cal Acord and his special effects team did an amazing job mm -hmm. in, in creating all of 
all of that stuff, all of the hardware mm-hmm. that had to be used that would now all be done with CGI. Mm-hmm. For sure. How was the whole puddle gag done? Um, <clears throat> we had shot most of it actually on location in, in a in a garage with a puddle on the floor. Mm-hmm. Then we built on the stage just the area where the puddle was um, a set. And that set was built above a 5,000 gallon tank of water. Oh, okay. And um, which was very, very complicated to do because we needed the light coming up through it. Well, you couldn't put the lights in the water. So this tank was built with huge windows and the windows had glass that was about a foot thick because the pressure from a 5,000 gallon tank is amazing. I mean, yeah, you know, pushing out. Um, So we had to build this tank and we had huge lights outside the tank going shooting in through these through these windows and inside the tank there were mirrors to to put the light where we needed to put the light and so there there were four divers inside the tank with with scuba gear adjusting the mirrors and and being safety for the uh for the actors so when Heather steps back into the puddle, there was a platform on a hydraulic lift that she stepped into, and then she looks down at her feet, and then we lowered lowered the hydraulic platform, which took her down into the water. And there were mm. um, there was the diver down there who had the, the prosthetics on his hands to look like you know like a rotting creature flesh, yeah. and uh, but there were two other divers there to safety her when she was actually pulled under the water and put put a scuba mask on her so that she could breathe Mm -hmm. because she had to stay down underwater while yeah the other two (laughs) actors came into the water and we had divers down there to safety them as well so it was uh it was all done for real what you see is what you get did any of these effects take like a lot of takes to do? Oh, they all took just... a lot of takes to do. Yeah, I kind of figured. I mean, you know, the, the mirror gags were some of the most complicated stuff. And when you have an actor on one mm-hmm. side and the double on the other side of the mirror, their movements had to be exact. So we used yeah. a metronome, uh-huh. which was played live on the set. So you get this. Yeah. And we had a choreographer who worked with us, who worked with the actors. And so the actors had to really pay attention to the, to the metronome so that it would step, 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 step movement. And we would actually talk to them because, you know, in most of those, um, uh, there's no dialogue in most of the complicated mirror scenes. So we wouldn't even shoot sound. Mm -hmm. And I could actually be talking to the actors and say, okay, three, two, one, step, three, two, one, mm-hmm. step, three, two, one, pick up. You know, if they had a prop that they had to pick up, you know, three, two, one, turn. Um, and so, and, and everything was done to the metronome. So 
Because, you know, a lot of those sets are double sets. There's double sets. There's mirror sets. There's sets with glass. There's sets. Yeah. Uh, no, you do a really great use of mirrors in the whole picture. It's amazing. Big time. Thank you. And you were you were inspired by uh, Through the Looking Glass, I heard. Was that true? Yeah. When, when, when Brian... When I was offered to do this, and I and I called Brian and I said, "You want to do Poltergeist 3? And he had the same reaction I did. He said, "No," and I said, "No, wait <laughs> no. before before you say no, I'm going to do it. We're going to do all the effects practical, so it's really going to be a magic show. And I want to do the whole thing about mirrors, and and it, it's basically Alice through the Looking Glass. I mean, it's Alice in Wonderland, yeah. and." Um, and, and, you know, instead of there being a rabbit hole, there's going to be a mirror and people will get sucked through the mirror. Mm-hmm. And Brian said, I'm in. Let's do it. <laughs> so, Another really cool effect you did was uh, Carol Ann's bedroom door where she's like coming through it. What was the material you used for that? It was curious. latex. Okay. It was, uh, it was a, a, a latex skin that was painted. And we, boy, we did so much testing on that and it was like a big bladder and then mm-hmm. you know <clears throat> it's funny watch poltergeist 3 again and you'll just see that there's props in certain places which you go why is that there and then you realize <laughs> it was like there's a hat hanging on the doorknob in carol yeah. ann's bedroom yeah well the reason that hat was hanging on the doorknob was because you it, when there wasn't a mirror and it was just air between double sets, in order to have the doorknob there, there had to be an armature to the doorknob. So the hat's there to hide the armature. Mm-hmm. Okay, does that make sense in, in yeah. words? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, for sure. al- also, when you first see Carol Ann's room, there's that construction paper thing that says Carol Ann's room on the door. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason that's there was that was the only way that we could hide the hole. Yeah. And then she comes <laughs> busting through that, 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 that uh, construction paper sign, the evil Carol Ann. You know, it's um, still effective though. It worked great. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, and, and, and the flooding freezer, Mm-hmm. We actually built that set so that set could be rotated. So the set was level and then mm-hmm. we could move the set to a 90 degree angle so that when it was oh, getting funny. filled up and the water, the wall of water was coming towards camera, the set was actually at 90 degrees and we yeah. actually were filling it with water. And then, you know, and then when, when Tangina comes out of the water, Tangina actually it, it's the opposite. She didn't come out of the water. We had her do the, the scene and then lowered her into the water and shot it backwards. Mm-hmm. And in order not to ever have to do, well, this is pretty complicated to be able to talk about in words, but <laughs> when, when, when you, most of the time when you shoot backwards, you shoot forwards and then you reverse the film in post-production. But in order yeah. to do that, you have to do an optical. You have to create a second generation. And I didn't want any second generation. So we had mm-hmm. to turn the camera upside down. 
in order in order to shoot backwards we had to be we had the camera had to be upside down so it was it was between shooting into mirrors and shooting upside down (laughs) and shooting into mirrors and shooting upside down george kohut the 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 camera operator on poltergeist 3 should have been given an oscar for yeah for what he did it was it was so difficult and then you know when you do a, a pan and you're looking in a mirror uh aside from the fact that it's very disconcerting you're moving at twice the speed because when you put the mirror in there it it changes all your distances mm-hmm Again, this is something that would be easier to to, to draw yeah, your like picture than, than to than to talk about it. But it and was it was all Julian. very complicated. Yeah, and then Julian Beck had to be recast too because he yeah, Julian away. died before we started shooting. It's like this yeah. film had so much death going on. Even Zelda's Zelda's mom had to. Zelda's mom died too, right? During Zelda's mom died while we were in the middle of shooting a scene. And it was, um, and I was the one that had to tell Zelda because I was, I had gotten very close with her. Barry Bernardi came down from the production office and said, we just got a call that Zelda's mother died. And Barry looks at me and says, you're the one that's got to tell her. uh, How'd that go? It was hard. It wasn't easy. I can't even imagine. But so, uh, talk about a little bit about recasting Julian Beck and how that worked out, because I heard that was kind of creepy with the whole death mask thing that he had. To yeah, there was a death work. mask of, of of him that Dick Smith had to create prosthetics to put on another face, and we just had to find. And as it happened, <clears throat> there was a man in Chicago yeah. uh, named Nate Davis, who's Andy Davis's father, mm-hmm. Andy Davis, who did The Fugitive. and and other yeah. movies in the package. Um, and I, I'd known Andy forever, and I knew his dad forever. And his dad just had a facial structure that was very close to, to Julian Beck's. And we brought Nate in. Nate was a wonderful actor. He was basically a Shakespearean uh, actor. Um, mm-hmm. And I had worked with Nate. Actually, I had I, I shot Nate in two in two other films before, um, and or two television series that I'd done in Chicago. He was in, and um, uh, so, anyways, we we brought Nate in and we started with all these prosthetics, you know, these latex prosthetics that had been basically cast from a. It wasn't really a death mask. It was a mask that had been done of Julian before he died for a picture, and they needed yeah. a casting of his face, and mm-hmm. uh, so the the cast existed. But it, it was kind of morbid having to do Still that. Still creepy. Yeah, <laughs> I can't so. imagine that. How did the new guy like wearing that? Um, well, he had three hours of prosthetics to do every morning before he came on the set so <laughs> yikes wasn't fun yeah but he knew what he was in for and then i heard i heard the building um hancock building ha- actually had real temperature issues is that a, is that a real thing too no with like the it's not 
<laughs> no, I think that was something uh, that somebody made up. Because uh, I read something that said at the beginning of the film, the characters mistakenly believe that the weather outside is cold. When they descend from the upper floors to the ground level, however, they find that it is quite warm. Hancock Center, due to the building's height, um, has, let me just see, it says, residents often call the lobby doormen before leaving their apartments to find out what conditions are like at ground level. Oh, that's true. Know. That's true. That's true. I mean, the, the build, there's no windows that open okay. in the building. And the building is completely temperature controlled, but they weren't having a problem with the temperature the temperature okay. is always the same inside the building and the humidity is always the same inside the building. It has its own climate. The building's unbelievable. The Hancock building yeah, is just is just one of the wonders of modern technology and modern architecture. Yeah. Um, it was inspired by Mies van der Rohe and it was built mm -hmm. by Skidmore Owings and Merrill uh, the firm of Skidmore Owings and Merrill, and all three of them, Skidmore Owings and Merrill, were all students mm -hmm. of Mies. Mies had nothing to do with the building, but it was inspired by by his architecture. And mm -hmm. the, the building's amazing. And uh, as it happens, years later, my, my wife, her father was a structural engineer. And I mean, and, well, Janet and I have only been married for like, 15 years so this was well after poltergeist yeah. 3 but i found out that her father was the structural engineer one of the wow. structural engineers on the building he he did the whole that's foundation crazy. the building of the caissons that the building floats on well, that's a coincidence so, so i i married into the i married into the hancock building <laughs> that's so cool i didn't even know that what was used to make the ice like throughout the oh, movie, yeah, especially yeah. like the parking garage? Um, styrofoam and fiberglass mm. uh, and, and epoxy yeah. resin. Mm -hmm. uh, all of the ice was, uh, I mean, on the swimming pool in the garage. Uh, Even when it was covered in the one guy when he comes out of the water? Uh, the, the guy that's in, coming out of the water that was latex and um, and epoxy resin. Okay. Uh, and and some goop that they put together, which was the drippy stuff. But basically, <laughs> he was in a suit that was made of latex and uh, and epoxy. And then I don't I don't remember what the goop was that <laughs> they threw all over him. <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. I mean, what we had to go through to get to get the Hancock building to let us use the pool uh, was unbelievable. Yeah. And then, you know, we we did this thing on the pool and we, the pool had to be closed for like two weeks. And then oh, we had to drain stuff. the pool and clean the pool and uh, refill the pool and... Uh, and it's, you know, funny. that's the highest swimming pool, the highest indoor swimming pool in the world in the Hancock. Still? Or, yeah, or still. at the time? No, oh, still <laughs> indoor. There's outdoor How pools. How high up that is that? Higher. Is that like all the way towards the top? It's at uh, 60, 60th floor, I believe. Oh, geez. Wow. That's pretty high. <laughs> I think. I'm pretty sure. I don't remember exactly, wow. but I'm pretty sure it's like 60 stories so. up. It's pretty also, amazing I, to sit in that swimming pool in the health club that's up there on that floor and look yeah. out over the city. 
Did any of you guys and the, the crew members go swimming at all? <laughs> all the stunt guys were in the pool. <laughs> I didn't really have time to go swimming. Yeah, sadly. Yeah. But I'll tell you Actually, what we yeah. did do. Here's, it was funny. Tom Skerritt used to call it the, the Poltergeist Olympics. He said every day uh -huh. we had an event that we had to do. And would come to me in the morning and say, what event are we doing today? Well, when we were shooting up on the roof, and Chicago okay. is the windy city, right? And it's always okay. windy. And when you're up uh -huh. on the roof of the Hancock building, believe me, it is windy up there. And no matter how warm it was downstairs, it's always chilly up there on the roof because you're, you're mm -hmm. so high up. And... Um, it was always, and the wind was always blowing. And the, the roof the roof of that building is like a square city block. I mean, it's huge mm -hmm. when you're up there on the roof. And what we used to do is we would all be wearing parkas. Mm -hmm. And we would stand and everybody would stand around so that everybody was safetyed. And people would face into the wind and then jump up in the air and open their parkas and they'd get caught by the wind and they'd get blowing like 15 feet. <laughs> and there we were, you know, quarter of a mile above the earth and people were, were flying. But, you know, we, we had people around to safety, everybody, so no one went over the edge. Yeah. <laughs> if the Hancock building knew we were doing that, they probably would have thrown us out of there. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, nobody really, I, I read something somewhere that a lot of people didn't even know the movie was being filmed there. No, we, like we, a lot of the residents. we had to, we had to be Plan pretty, you know, we, the sky lobby we built, we didn't actually mm -hmm. shoot that in the building, all the hallways and everything we built, we, we built two two floors of the Hancock building plus the sky lobby on a stage mm -hmm. and the stuff that was actually shot and all the stairways were built on the stage. Um, mm -hmm. The lobby sequence was actually shot in the building next door, which had a lobby mm -hmm. that looked like the Hancock, but the Hancock didn't work for us. I wanted all the escalators. And so the water mm -hmm. tower had better escalators. So we shot that there. Um, we shot exterior of the, of the actual Hancock building. We shot on the roof of the Hancock building. We shot in the restaurant that, you know, at the top of the Hancock building, we shot on the window washing rig yeah. at the Hancock center. And, um, mm -hmm. uh, but that was about it. Um, everything we shot was from like the 95th floor up inside the building and uh and we shot outside the building the 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 garage was in a different place we built all the elevators we built all the banks of elevators so all of that was shot in the studio did anybody on the crew have a fear of heights oh yeah there were people who would not shoot on the roof we had to replace oh, some people and 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 there were people who actually our focus puller um, a first assistant cameraman had a fear of mm -hmm. heights and would not go up on the roof. Um, and then, you know, and Tom Skerritt, when I told him that he <laughs> had to ride on the window washing rig, he said, Oh God. Okay. But I got to tell you, 
where's camera going to be? And I showed him where camera going to be. He said, you will be as close to me as you can be and be off camera. He said, because I'm not riding on that thing if you're not standing right next to me. So every shot of Tom on that window washing rig, I am just off camera. Oh, wow. <laughs> he was not happy. That's terrifying. I think Nancy had less of a fear of heights than Tom, but uh, they were both pretty nervous out there. And then, you know, we had a whole crew and everybody had to be strapped on and every piece of equipment we uh-huh. put onto the, uh, to the window washing rig had to be tethered. Mm-hmm. so that nothing could fall off because i mean <laughs> you drop something off of, you, you, you know you, you drop a, a quarter off of that plate. thing when yeah. you're up at the top it'll go through the sidewalk when it hits yeah i mean yeah, the velocity scary. is unbelievable so anything that's dropped off of there is going to be have the have the acceleration of a bullet by the time it gets to the ground mm-hmm were you a big fan of Nancy Allen when you had her on there? Yeah, I mean, I liked Nancy, and you know, there were, there were some problems. Well, yeah. yeah, Nancy Nancy's been great in a lot of things, and uh, un- unfortunately, yeah. she and Brian were going through their divorce while uh, we were shooting Poltergeist, so she wasn't exactly a happy camper, and she and Tom did not get on very well. Um, really? Yeah. Well, Tom has a habit. When Tom is doing something very seriously, when you say cut, he always makes a joke just to break the tension so he can walk off the set. And and Nancy felt Nancy kept feeling like the jokes were aimed at her. And, oh, and really? so at the beginning she got really upset with it and it was hard to break her of that <laughs> belief oh, wow. that it wasn't being aimed at her. Did Nancy work on RoboCop before Poltergeist 3, or was that after? That was before. Before? Wasn't it? She had just finished it? I can't remember. I've only seen the first one. Yeah, because I know it was released the same year. It was released in 88. Hmm. There were a lot of good movies that year. Oh, yeah. Oh, I think I think she did RoboCop with, with Verhoff, and I think she did that before we did Poltergeist 3. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. I'm almost positive. We got some fan questions for you if you're able to answer some of these. Okay. Uh, Peter Vulo asks, ask him if he has any updates regarding the restoration of Dead and Buried and if he can give us any specifics about the Blu-ray. Um, I wish I had better news about the restoration. Of yeah. Technicolor, which was bought by some Japanese company, has a warehouse in Camarillo and somewhere in that warehouse is the original negative of dead and buried Mm -hmm. and we thought we had it we had a box that was marked dead and buried original negative when we but it wasn't there pulled it out it wasn't it wasn't dead and buried's negative we know that the negative is there we are trying to find it Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the rights to it, or, you know, Bill Lustig does for Blue Underground. Mm-hmm. And um, 
someday we will find it and someday we will do it. I mean, it's funny, we've shot all the extras already. We, we thought we had the negative and then it ended up that it wasn't the negative. We actually found, found what was marked as the negative, sent it to London to have it scanned on the, on the, on the Aeroflex scanner in, in London, which is the best scanner in the world. And realized that it was an, an interneg and it was a bad interneg. And, um, but the negative is somewhere, the cut negative, and we will find it eventually. And there will be a Blu-ray, a Blu-ray of Dead and Buried, which will look as good as the Blu-ray of Deathline. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, our friend Stephen Emery, and he he's actually a really big Poltergeist fan. He loves Poltergeist 3, too. Um, he said, it would be cool to hear him talk about the filming of the trailer, where they used that helicopter shot to fly up to the building, and whether Heather filmed a scene of her saying, guess who's back in town? The, the publicity still would seem to indicate this. Yeah, well, <clears throat> they, they shot that... Um... They brought in a, a company that did that that helicopter thing that that flew through. That was done while we were in pre-production. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't have anything to do with it other than approving what was being done. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, and and they did shoot Heather. Um, I didn't do it, but that was all done by a by a company that does trailers and and publicity yeah. stuff. He said, also ask if he's still making the documentary on Poltergeist 3. Um, w- well, it's not a documentary. I am going to, you know, I've been doing this lecture series and I, I eventually yeah. will. Uh, some people have talked to me about putting the lecture series on a, um, Film. a, on a Blu-ray, which yeah. we will do eventually when I'm tired of doing it live, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Or you could just film the live one and just release it. That's what we're <laughs> going to do, basically. Yeah. Um, do you have any ideas for a Poltergeist 4? He also wants to know. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. That's not I, surprising. I, I, um, You're done. At, at this point in my life, anything else that I do, I realize is going to be part of my legacy because whatever I do next mm-hmm. is probably going to be the last thing that I do. I mean, mm. um, I'm going to be 75 in August, and um, mm-hmm. uh, I'm I'm very healthy for 75, and I'm in great shape. Yes, and, you look like <laughs> um, doo-doo. and uh, and actually under this hat, I have a full head of hair. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, I got more hair than either of you guys actually, <laughs> and a lot of it. Um, I need a haircut. <laughs> me too. Well, during the pandemic, look at my beard is coming in really good during the, my, yeah. my pandemic beard. <laughs> I'm growing beard. out my beard until the pandemic is done. Me too. <laughs> I haven't trimmed it. Not, I usually just have stubble but because uh, I don't like to shave. So I just trim, trim with, a, with a clipper, but, um, uh, but I'm just letting it grow. Um, I am thinking there's a few projects that I'm thinking about doing. Uh, there's a couple of projects I'm thinking about producing and, and, and mm-hmm. one project that I'm thinking about getting very involved in. Uh, and uh, one I project was all set to go before the pandemic hit and we got Ugh. 
damn it. We don't know if it's going to get resurrected or not. So, boo boo. Yeah. Because of the fact that I have don't have a crystal ball, I don't really want to talk about any of those. But the, 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 yeah. whatever projects I do between now and when I just hang up, hang up the mm -hmm. the hat for good. Um, yeah, I, I'm taking very seriously. Well, whatever you do next, you have our support. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And then Steven also wants to know, what was his idea for Poltergeist 2 when he was offered, or was it the same script? They offered me the script, and I turned okay. it down. You were like, I'm not doing that. All right. Um, and then did you keep anything from the set of Poltergeist 3? Yeah, I have a bunch of reverse stuff. Oh, I should have. Oh, we're not visual, so it didn't matter. Um, I have my... <laughs> when we did... When we shot the show, we, when we, we did a lot of stuff that we shot into a mirror so that mm -hmm. the mirror was at a 45-degree angle to the camera, and so everything we shot was reversed um, yeah. because, we, you know, we wanted it to be reversed. And so when we put up the slate board, the slate board would be reversed. So we didn't want when this when the dailies went to the studio for them to see the dailies every day. We didn't want them to know what was shot in the mirror and what wasn't. So we did a reverse slate. We had a slate that was backwards. <laughs> all the lettering was backwards. We'd write on the slate backwards and do all the identification. Everything was written backwards and. I have the slates. I still, I still have the slates, oh, so the forward cool. slate and the backward slate. I think I put it up <laughs> on my Facebook page one day. If you go to my Facebook page, you can probably find a picture yeah, of find it. it. Um, yeah. And uh, and then I have the the cups uh, with Freud's picture on it from Doctor Seaton's office. The cup that went oh, through okay. the window, because the yeah. cups we had to have cups with right hand and left hand handles so that they were mirror mm -hmm. images of each other. I have a whole bunch of mirror image stuff that I kept from memorabilia cool. that I kept from the, because uh, everything had to be made. Everything that was in Carol Ann's room, we had to have a reverse of. And yeah. everything that was in Dr. Seaton's office, we had to have a reverse of. Did anybody keep that torn apart Carol Ann's bedroom door sign? Uh, God, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That would have been a cool thing to keep. Yeah, Cal probably has some of that stuff or had some of it. Cal's gone too. Yeah. And then the last thing Stephen wanted to know was, will you ever do a convention? Um, you know, I do film festivals. Uh, yeah. But um, actually somebody had called me and asked to, to agent me for conventions. And I, I uh -huh. said, but this was just before, again, the pandemic. And Bill Lustig uh -huh. has been trying to talk, because Bill does conventions, so he wanted me to start doing yeah. conventions with him. And I thought... I think you should. You'd make a killing at him. Yeah, well, they're not going to be any for a while. Not for a while, but when, when they do. <laughs> yeah. And we know a guy, uh, Sean Clark. I don't know. You probably know who that is, because he was in Cursed Films with you on the Poltergeist episode. He has like 300 clients that do conventions. Oh yeah, tell them to call me. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, I will. You 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 know how to, you know how to get to me. So um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I would I would I guess after 
after the pandemic's done, I would do conventions. No, it'd be fun. It'd be great to see you too. Absolutely. And then uh, Jeremy Moorhead wants to know what's a gag on or a gag or FX on Poltergeist three that wasn't filmed that you wish you could have filmed. The ending. Um, yeah. We were going to morph Carol Ann into Tangina and Tangina into Carol Ann. And all of that was going to be Whoa. done practically. And it was really wow. complicated. And um, I don't know if you've ever, have either of you guys ever seen that the commercial that Gene Simmons and I did for Rock Against Drugs for MTV? I never did. I'm, no. I'm actually surprised, me being a huge Kiss fan, but now I'm going to have to look that up. Look it up on, <laughs> um, it's on YouTube. Uh, and up. you can you can look it up. <laughs> and Gene comes out like a monster staring into the camera. Yeah. And and he's he's all made up. Rick Baker did the makeup. And I, I've been so lucky. I work with the best. I've worked with Dick Smith, with Stan Winston, <laughs> with Rick Baker, uh, all the best special effects guys ever, you know, makeup effects. Mm -hmm. Anyways, Gene comes out like a, like a ghoul, like a monster, and it glares into camera and says, uh, drugs are great. Drugs make you cool. Drugs, you know. <laughs> and then suddenly he sinks, he sinks his fingers into his face and rips his face apart and pulls this thing, <sighs> and, a, and a perfectly made-up Gene Simmons is underneath this makeup. It's all done in one shot. Yeah, we're actually watching it right yeah, now. He, he pulled it up. <laughs> yeah, I had, I had to check this out for myself, but That's yeah, funny. I'm looking at that. That actually looked That's amazing. Great, rad, yeah, rad. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyways, it was gonna basically the same way that we did that. We we're gonna do these these transitions from, you know, Carol a Carol Ann face with the fingers going into it and ripping it off, and it becomes mm -hmm. Tangina and then Tangina putting her hands in and it becomes Carol Ann. So Carol Ann was going to be made up to be Tangina and Tangina was going to be made up to be Carol Ann and, oh, and rip so their cool. faces off as they come through the mirror. And yeah. that, that, that whole transition of, 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 of that happening was what I based the whole ending of the film on, which I'm mm -hmm. sorry that we never got to shoot because it would have been very emotional. Mm -hmm. as they traded places tangina basically sacrifices herself first carol ann and carol ann is able mm -hmm. to come through the mirror and mm -hmm. as they come through the mirror they morph from one to the other that's a great idea that was a, an effect i would have loved to have done either way i think heather o'rourke would definitely be proud yeah well, for sure. thank you i mean i, I love her <laughs> mm -hmm. She was she was one of my favorite human beings. I tell, I tell you a quick mm -hmm. a quick Heather O'Rourke story. You know we had oh, yeah, I, sure. I'm sure you've read about the the explosion that we had on the set when we were shooting the fireball down in the garage, and it got completely out of control and the the, the garage burned. We did about a quarter of a million dollars worth of damage to the building. Oh damn! I didn't wow. even hear about that. And it was all over the news the next day. You know, everybody on oh. every news program was carrying this explosion and this fire. And it actually wasn't our fault. It was, but it's a long story. That's irrelevant. Yeah. The next morning, Heather comes running into my office 
She comes running up to me and said, Gary, Gary, I saw all that about the explosion on the news this morning. That was awful. And I said, yeah. She said, ah, did anyone get hurt? And I said, no, thanks, Heather. Nobody got hurt. It was, it was all uh -huh. fine. She said, oh, that's good. And then she looks at me and says, did you get the shot? Oh, <laughs> oh my God. That's what a pro she was. <laughs> did you get the shot? Yeah, she was beyond her years for sure. Yeah. So we got one more from uh, Jeremy. He said, "Lisa thoroughly creeped me out as a nine-year-old kid. It was hard for my kid mind to process Stacy Keenan, who was the star of My Two Dads and Step by Step, two wholesome shows, as a victim of a psycho stalker. How was it working with such a young TV star on that film? It was great. Stacy Keenan was fantastic. Um, yeah, I loved working with her." And, uh, and, and the young actress that played her, her best friend. Um, mm -hmm. We had so much fun making that film. Uh, that film was really a, a fun film to make. And I, my daughter, um, uh, when I made that film, my, my daughter always complained. Her mother, her mother and I had been separated for a long time, but her mother wouldn't let her watch any of my films because all of my films were R-rated. Yeah. And, and she was a little girl. And so, anyways, I wrote that script for my daughter. I, I, I wanted to write something for her, and so I wrote this teenage thriller, which was pg and I wrote the script for her and do doop. And then when we, when, uh, when Poltergeist went through what it went through, Dick Berger as a thank you for me coming back and finishing Poltergeist, which I didn't want to do, but I agreed to finally, I agreed to do it. Said, bring me a script, any script you want to make and MGM will make the script. And I said, well, I just wrote this script for my daughter. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I gave him the script to Lisa and he said, I would have made this film if I didn't owe you a favor. He said, this is a great script. Yeah. So let's make it. And, and unfortunately we ended up making it with MGM, which was unfortunate because MGM went into bankruptcy while we were making the movie. Oh, and really? it never really oh, got man. released. It went straight to television. Mm -hmm. So, sucks um which was why i decided to retire <laughs> pretty much yeah that's a couple I, hard hits in a row i did i did one film where my where my star died and my yeah. next film the studio died and i just said you know what television is a much better place to be and since then mm -hmm. that's all i've done is television well at the end of the day your whole career is amazing we love all your work. There really isn't a film out there that we don't enjoy to some extent. Yeah. I mean, you've gotten so, to work with some amazing people over the years too. I have yeah. worked with some really amazing people. I have been so lucky to work with Donald Pleasance, with Christopher Lee, with, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, just, you know, Norman Rossington, um, mm -hmm. Clive Swift. I mean, just amazing people. I mean, Clive Swift had just finished a Hitchcock picture when he did Deathline with me. Um, and then, you know, Robert England and uh, yeah. John Forsyth. And, uh, I, I, it just goes on and on. And then in television, working with Daniel J. Travanti, 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it, De- Missing Persons, which I did with, with Daniel, is the only series he did after. He didn't want to do another series after Hill Street Blues. He did Hill Street Blues for eight years. And he just said, that's enough. I don't have to do any more series. And then when I brought him the pilot script of Missing Persons, he said, how could you do this to me? You brought me a script I want to do. (laughs) And and we did it. And working with Daniel was just amazing. He and I are still friends. He, He actually... When I brought him to, I wanted to do Missing Persons in Chicago, so we shot the show in Chicago. And Daniel just fell in love with Chicago when he was here and decided to buy a house here. So he bought, a, he bought an estate up in Lake Forest, which is a suburb just north of Chicago. And he lives here. And, I, and then I moved back here, and so we still see each other quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, my my wife loves his gardens. His gardens go on forever on his house, and he's really into his gardens. And we're funny. probably going to go up there actually in the next few days. We'll social distance, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and see how the garden's coming this spring. So yeah, yeah. Social distancing is nuts. They actually just opened the trails in LA today, but they're requiring everybody wear a face mask. Yeah, well, I don't go out without a mask on. And, yeah, you know, do and that's rough. Anyway, I mean, you know, and then as far as you know, like I mentioned, I've worked with Stan Winston, with with Rick mm-hmm. Baker, with Dick Smith, the, the best mm-hmm. cameraman. I've worked with Alex Thompson, uh, mm-hmm. you know, John Alcott, um, mm-hmm. Alex Napomnishi. I mean, I've just Fred Schuler. I've just gotten to work mm-hmm. with some of the most amazing human beings. And um, been very lucky. My acting coach actually got to to work with Rick Baker on her first film, which was a film called Schlock. Uh huh. If you know about Schlock, yeah. Uh, my Eliza Garrett, uh, she's Eliza Roberts now, but yeah, she got to work with him on that. And he did. I think that was one of his first films, as well. All I gotta say is, wow! Like, we definitely got a lot of amazing questions answered. You know, and we definitely got more than what we expected, which is great. Yeah, and I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you. This was fun. And it was nice. Yeah, it's sure. always nice being interviewed by somebody that knows what they're, you know, that's done their homework. Yeah. So you guys have asked some really interesting questions. And... Yeah, I didn't want to just talk about Poltergeist or, <laughs> you know, specific, you know, one film kind of thing. Again, Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, thank you guys, and good luck to you, and hope all goes well. Stay safe. All right. Hope to see you around after all this. Absolutely. Be good. We're going to close this on some neon slime. Oh, yeah.
Never be the same Come taste 